0: Um, so what do I need to know for this weekend?
1: Fill me in. Um, uh, Chicago is a city. Okay. Uh, it's been around a while. So there's some, you know, historical things corruption. that are there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. A lot of corruption, uh, a lot of, uh, corporatist involvement, a lot of, uh, big, uh, uh, union type of deals happened in Chicago. A lot of uh worker uprisings and uh, people getting shot by police and things like that. Uh, was thrown the in jungle the river. based there? Was what? The jungle? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was New York, but I don't know. It could be Chicago.
0: It was a meat factory, right? So I thought, isn't Chicago what is the Dallas Chicago connection cuz that was also like meat came from Texas up to Chicago
1: Yeah yeah and there's for the sh- Midwest
0: or Yeah th- and New there's New still and like
1: a huge um I guess trucker lane that go connects through Dallas to Chicago there's a, that's a huge uh, sort of uh route routes for logistics main, main trucking route for logistics that connects those two cities truckers do that run back and forth and a lot of it is goods that come from mexico then are sourced in dallas or in houston um and then divvied up into the different trucks and then taken to chicago from there
0: okay and what is the toll that i need to pay to mary lightfoot uh, Mayor Lightfoot. <laughs> Lori Lightfoot. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. All all the Lightfoot, you know, because I'm sure she got that name from being indigenous. Don't you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Lightfoot don't know. just sounds kind of like, I don't know if you should be having that last name. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that was... Um, at least I have my last name. The last name of my... My um, mom's maiden name is uh, Truel T R U L L, which in Britain means a uh, prostitute.
1: Okay. So so I
0: was named after a different thing. So
1: you, prob- <laughs> you probably aren't the descendants of any of the uh, East India Company land and slave holding people. You would have had a uh, different no. last name. <laughs> I would. You, you
0: know what? I would imagine so. Um my grandfather did get really into like genealogy stuff and he claims he traced it back to like people coming over in the 1600s or whatever, but that were poor all the way, like Mm -hmm. indentured servants and stuff. So, um, yeah, I just watched
1: that, uh, Atlanta episode, whatever. Okay. Three or four, the reparations episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That
0: one, I, I loved the, um, the scene when he was talking with the guy in the hotel. Cause that's such, such like a good metaphor of like, okay, these like, yeah, white people can understand it and their solution is I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> right, right.
1: It's, it's, it's like he's, he's trying to give him like a, hey, look. Maybe we should have some perspective on this situation. Maybe uh, you shouldn't just focus on all this bad stuff happening to you. Maybe, you know, have a little broader cultural awareness, historical perspective. Maybe, you know, own the sins of your fathers. Um, And here's how I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That was...
0: Did you notice too, I don't know if you like look stuff up afterwards, but that was the same guy as like the boat scene in the first episode.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know they were reusing uh, actors for those types of things. But that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, Because every episode, like, I guess I'm four episodes in. So there's been two like abstract episodes and then two like on the ground in Europe hustling, trying to do shows episodes.
0: Yeah, the the Europe episodes are great. The anthology ones are pretty cool. The first episode, I mean, I don't know if you looked this up, but that's like based on a real yeah. Nikki story, was telling which...
1: me right when it went down, right when uh, you know she saw that it was the two lesbians with all the kids, um, ad- adopted kids, and she was like, "Oh, this is that story." <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know, what is the story?" And she told me we paused the show, and she she's like, "Yeah, this actually happened." So. Yeah. So,
0: I, w- I mean, we when we were doing our adoption episode a couple weeks ago, that was like the only thing going through my mind, but I was like, I can't, <laughs> can't bring it up.
1: So what episode are you on now? Uh, I think we're through four. The, the uh, reparations one was the last one we watched, I think. Yeah. Okay. It's either that well, one or the one where they're in... No, uh, the one after the reparations episode where... Uh, uh van the the old uh european white lady yells at van for stealing a wig at the end and then her and her oh, right. hook up and he's like i don't understand why did we even do this yeah
0: yeah yeah um pay attention to van this season because it that's the one that comes back around um and that's all i'll say she's
1: she's she's on a journey
0: Yeah, for real.
1: (laughs) Don't know if it's totally self-destructive or just looking for chaotic good versus chaotic evil in the world right now, but uh, she's kind of like, hey, I, you know, snuck over here to Europe. I don't got a kid holding me down anymore. I'm just going to do me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you'll see where that takes her. (laughs) Well, um. Since we're talking about Atlanta, uh, why don't I just steal another phrase from a former Atlanta podcast host from a different podcast, LFTP. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. Let's, um,
1: let's fuck this pig. Yeah, which I never understood. but it's, it's time, It means it's time for us to pause the podcast, and then we're going to get baked, and then we're going to start the podcast again. And this time, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. What's never ending to find the beginning? They came up for everything. Like kids with decor.
0: And there was a lot of talk about at that time of uh, Father John Misty, which
1: did that guy fall off? Has he made any music? He just came out with a new record um, a couple months or last month, Chloe and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it's like a very um, symphonic based record, whereas, you know, the other ones are kind of rock, folk. Um, a little alt country influence type of things more stripped down. Like this one is obvious that Josh Tillman was stuck inside of his house, you know, for two years during a pandemic. And so he was like, ah, why don't I just, instead of just writing a guitar part. I could write parts for like an entire string section and horns and uh, timpanies and <laughs> and now and then I'll get the L.A. Uh, symphonic orchestra to like track all these parts for my album. And now when I go on tour, I'm gonna like in some of the cities, I'm gonna have their symphonic orchestras come out and play behind me, so we can have this big, huge, majestic experience. It's cool. It's different mm. than his other records because of that. It's very compositionally focused rather than sort of folky uh spun up wisdom and philosophy and poking weird, at irony right? and stuff like that. Yeah, I he's kind of um, a kindred spirit to me just because we're almost exactly the same age and uh he has a very similar background history of being growing up in a very uh rigid um protestant christian environment uh parents were involved in ministry he was homeschooled as a, as a kid and stuff like that so and many of what he talks about like his influences are like the same like christian music that only i was allowed to listen to it was kind of his same deal he was only allowed to listen to these few christian artists um and then of course you you get to your uh late teens and early 20s and you have uh whole revolt and awakening against all of that establishment stuff you learned. Um And, you know, you become a uh, militant atheist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I think I
0: only tried to read some of his lyrics because, again, you know, I can't really hear them in a song. And so I was just like, this is some weird, weird stuff. Funky. I don't know. Weird is always a weird word because it sounds... Derogatory, but it's out there. It doesn't follow the
1: IE convention.
0: Uh, Well, isn't there a really long phrase? It's like I before E except after C or when sounding like A is in neighbor or way or. sounding like this because that 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 is like
1: i I think it stops at neighbor away i've never heard the continuation because i think it's a long phrase instead of having a rule you just have a bunch of exceptions
0: yeah (laughs) isn't that english
1: it kind of is it kind of is the way that our our wonderful language works Uh, just one of those things too where like english syntax is so important but none of us ever learn syntax like you don't go to school and you learn like how to order your adjectives when describing an object we just all know it because we use the language together so we know like you don't like you you if you're going to describe something you do it in a certain order of descriptive things and if you get that order out of sequence then people are like confused uh, about what you're talking about, but we just do it naturally just because we learned the language conversationally rather than like at a university.
0: <laughs> when well, that was the weird thing because I, when I taught like at that English uh, conversation school, I had a group of they were all like 60 plus. Um, it was a group of like four or five adults that would meet and they all knew each other really well. And, um, that was like one of their favorite lessons which was they were at the they were so fluent that their class was supposed to be a conversation class where you just come in with like a news topic or whatever mm-hmm. but they loved doing those earlier book kind of lessons because they're just like I want to figure this out like how do I order you know the the brown leather bag why can I not say leather brown bag and I'm like okay so I would like try to write out a chart and be like I would write it out and I'd be like okay color then material then size uh, then you know object and then they'd do it and then they'd do it for like a food order or something and I'd be like okay maybe we flip those
1: Yeah. yeah, and then all of a sudden you're talking about a person. So where do I put the uh, yes, emotional adjective? <laughs> do I put it do I say he was an angry big uh red faced man? Or do I like how <laughs> where does the angry go?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they whenever we got to people, they were like, Okay, let's use words like fat and dumb and I'm like, <laughs> these are like not nice things to say about people. And they're like, yeah, how, we do know, yeah, we How
1: do we? How do? What's the proper order of pejoratives to
0: use? <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of. They like wanted me to teach them how to cuss, essentially.
1: <laughs> so you don't say "fucking mother," you say "motherfucker." <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, and, and then you say, you know, uh you don't say like "holy damn." That doesn't make. That doesn't land. <laughs>
1: Although, there was it, it always that kid. Sense. Though it would make sense. Like damnation implies that's like a, some sort of holy act of sin. That's you true. To help, yeah. So maybe yeah, they're okay, on so, something.
0: <laughs> unless you're giving a sermon, <laughs> huh. man. Well, um, so this week, um, this is a Josh requested episode. Yeah. And a rare this is one Josh episode. Uh, but that's not true. We probably split it maybe fifty-fifty. <laughs> Um, about the Zapatistas and I, this is one of those ones where I'm, I have to sit back and just read a bunch. Cause I'm like, I was born in 1990. So yeah, like I, I knew about the Zapatistas, but that was from learning about them in college. I had no context, like in school, never brought up. Um, it was probably just. One of those, like, today I learned things on Reddit or whatever that mm-hmm. I was like, there's a what? And, you know, this was also during the time when I was coming up with my own political philosophy and then trying to be like, well, is are, is there a word that describes this? And then I was like, oh, yes, in fact, <laughs> it's been around for
1: 200 years. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> no, no, you just invented it. You're the first I, Right, <laughs> You're yeah. the first one you would be like, you know what, maybe... uh what if the workers controlled the means of production (laughs) has anyone thought of this yet (laughs) that was i feel like that's
0: one of my um one good trait about me is like i will i will listen to people who are smarter than me and i don't think i've thought that i invented something like there have been there have been inventions i have invented and then i see them like on you know um not qvc but late night you know call-in things like A few months later, I'm like, should have come out with that like I knew it. Um, But but those are not, uh,
1: you know, political philosophies. Yeah. My my only thing like that. And it's it's kind of a joke amongst me and my old uh, co-workers. But we we all had like a running dialogue over a series of lunch conversations in the early 2000s. And we basically invented Uber. (laughs) oh no (laughs) because we were like what would be better than like hov lanes because that was like a big topic and then they were gonna there were talks of building a big toll road going over the trinity river on the uh west side of downtown dallas Mm -hmm. and so we were all thinking like well you know they keep complaining about everyone having to commute to downtown and having to get through downtown to get to North Dallas and how do we, how would we make that? And so we basically came up with a gamified way of what if we like, uh, the idea was uh, to be like based in some sort of PlayStation scenario where like you would drive other people who would, you know, need you to give them a ride, but then you would earn like credits in this gamified like live action game that you were also playing and then you could use those as like experience points for that character build or whatever you were doing. So it was a very sort of gamified way of commuting and we were trying to basically make it a video game. But yeah. Then, you know, whatever 5 years later people like had phones with apps on them. What what if life <laughs> was a
0: video game? Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. So so what what if we gamified all of it? Right. <laughs> What if we made it a game to just not starve every day?
0: (laughs) I have to ask, and this is a tangent, but I always call it the HOV lane. Is that a Texas thing that it's they don't want you to associate it with carpooling? They want you to just associate it with having a like your family in the car or something? Because out here it's the carpool lane. Okay. And I whenever we're driving, I'll ask Mijo, like, do I need to take the HOV? And She'll just be like, why, why do you call it, like, yeah, take the carpool lane. But, you know, carpool implies you're riding with, like, coworkers,
1: Right, like the old uh, thing that we always used to see in TV shows in the early 90s where one group's all picking everyone up and, like, Diana's always running late and they're, like, sitting out in front of her driveway and she's just not getting her shit together, make- making everyone else at the office late. It's got to be something. I feel like there's some kind of
0: individualism going on there. Uh yeah,
1: it's it's it, yeah, it's either that or the naming convention of the Department of Transportation of that state. Okay, well. So yeah, when you, you have, have, have a bunch that. of engineers like naming stuff, you end up with a lot of acronyms for very specified terms. So like high occupancy vehicle would be HOV, and this is the case of like all engineers, not just transportation engineers like they love acronyms like ROW for right of way and like in anything. If you look at like any drawings for any civil engineering design, any structural en- engineering design, like you have to have like this insider knowledge to even be able to read them because it's just a bunch of a- acronyms pointing at things. <laughs> uh texas
0: engineer favorite acronym atm for texas a&m yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah you get it you get it
0: <laughs> yeah um so the with the zapatistas that is all to say that i like i know of them and i think it's a very cool situation but i am needing to research a ton on it Whereas I feel like your in your knowledge of it was much more like understanding kind of what was going on. Of course, you know, I feel like in the nineties things were not as quick paced, but yeah. because things could stick in the news for a little bit longer, like it had some social hold, right?
1: Yeah. And well for me, this being the oldest millennial, um this was pretty f- face-forward, like, things that were going on, not just inside of when you would turn on, you know, the news where you had watched the same stuff from the Gulf War and everything. This was, like, also on MTV news and things like that. Um, But uh, largely because of Rage Against the Machine. So being a fan of Rage Against the Machine kind of meant that If you actually were a fan of the music beyond just listening, being like, oh, that's a cool guitar sound when you heard the song on the radio the first time, you were automatically um, part of a movement, part part of some kind of people's movement that was going on. And as you got into the lyrics and as you understood the symbolism of the band and why they had a big red star with a black flag as they're like emblem and all that other stuff it started to make more sense and it was impossible to be a fan of the band without getting really involved with understanding these um sort of social issues that were going on around the world and uh of course this is before like myspace this is before like any kind of uh real social media or anything like that. Like, the most that we had back then was bulletin boards and message board systems. And, like, every band, instead of, like, a... They had, like, their front-facing website type of thing, but the website, you know, is, like, GeoCities. Like, really shitty websites. So, they would just basically be like a front facing page that would give you the direct link to wherever the message board was. And the message board is where all the shit went down because then you were just talking with other fans from all over the world. And so, then there were like the ones who were very radicalized and organizing like protests and events all around the country and uh, sharing materials uh, or telling you where to go in your city to get like a zine. (laughs) This is back in the days of (laughs) zines where it was just like uh, someone went to Kinko's and like printed a 12 page black and white thing on eight and a half by 11 and stapled it together and like left it at the CD store. And then you would go to the CD store and you'd pick that up and you like read this person's article whoever wrote it, <laughs> you know, there's no, it's, it's like, uh, even before blogging, you know, was like a big thing. This is the way we found out about stuff. Um, so in high school and my junior year of high school, 1998, when I went to public school, my first year at public high school, uh, one of the first clubs I joined was, uh, the Zapatista club at, at school. And it was fronted by this, um, senior girl and she had us all over to her house like the it was the second week of school um and, or the second week of the next semester uh so 1999 and um she had obtained a VHS copy of the Zapatista documentary movie that Rage Against the Machine had helped produce and um we all just like sat down in her in her living room around her 13 inch CRT TV (laughs) and (laughs) and watched it (laughs) all sitting really close. So we could read the subtitles. Um, and after that we all like were part of the, you know, the things you do when you're a kid back then before the internet was really ubiquitous. You do a letter writing campaign (laughs) (laughs) in which you solicit donations. And then, uh, you then we like actually donated that money to the EZLN. Um, just thinking back to now, like I don't know if that club would ever fly today in a high school. Oh, I'm I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah, are you like on a list? <laughs> no, but I, of course this is before Columbine. Like all the kids at our school, we had a bunch of trench coat kids in our in our Zapatista club. You know, mm-hmm. so it, just all of these weird like. Uh, Things that became these giant cultural divides like the next in like the next few months that ended up causing schools to be like these big police lockdown zones that happened after it hadn't happened fully yet. And like it was more like administrators were kind of still like, oh, yeah, whatever, as long as you kids are. Adding stuff to your resume for college, <laughs> you know like, right yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining what college <laughs> would accept someone with zapatista president zapatista club president
1: well and and our our high school was like sixty percent um hispanic uh, most mostly most, mostly mexican. um, so I wonder also if there was just like a cultural like uh, Ambivalent or sort of fugue state towards anything that was vaguely referencing Mexican culture, because all of those clubs were all over the school. From you know, of course, like Lulac, and uh, and then we had like the Mexican traditional dancing club, and we had like uh, a uh, um, uh, a music Mexican music club. Um, there was like a horse, a Mexican horse club in the 4-H uh, where they like did like the Mexican style uh, horse riding where they do the high hoof walking and all that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I, maybe that was it too. Maybe it just kind of flew under the radar because it was like, oh, this is just another one of those clubs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i the clubs at my high school were like you know the christian athletes club the christian meet at the flagpole oh yeah and we pray definitely every had morning those, club uh, and f c
1: a uh, the the flagpole kids
0: yeah f c a um man, i can't remember, but there were i'm sure there were more clubs, but like i was i was stretched then uh <laughs> <laughs> to say the least um but i think the thing that I find most impactful in researching this and the, where I wanted to start was talking about how like the, the Zapatista movement, which we'll get into much more kind of what their thinking is and everything, but their view is they're fighting against 500 years of oppression. Yeah. And that's something that like, you know, as we as we mentioned as i clear my family name that we were <laughs> not you know land owning people in the us i don't know I'm, you know whatever um surely benefited from being white along the way yeah um but it it is one of those things that you can talk about and know but the uh i believe this is like subcommandant marcos was saying that the Zapatismo is not something you think it's something that you feel with your heart and soul. Yeah. And this is kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about whenever we have our ranting episodes of like, things are going to have to get so much worse that you are willing to lose every semblance of anything you've recognized in order to survive essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what, they're dealing with so it's something that you can rationalize but to understand that they feel the 500 years of oppression is important so running that down for uh, even if it's just my own sake is kind of a big jumping off point yeah. to to really let it sink in
1: the context matters and in order to make sense of it you got to know the context
0: yeah <clears throat> Um, and I mean, it is like literally 500 years of oppression pretty much from when they, they started. You
1: you start with Columbus and let's go from there. (laughs)
0: Right. So, so, uh, I'm going to do this like really brief. Um, the video I watched on it was like 25 minutes going through all these. So I'm going to try to do it in like three. All right. Um, but you of course have Columbus in 1492 who lands in, Uh, the Caribbean, and the big thing with Columbus is he and his um, colonizers established the template for colonial endeavors for Spanish, Portuguese, French, Britain, you know, Dutch, everyone who colonizes anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And the concept is enriching oneself at the expense of others. Um, This is where, of course, Justin will have different words (laughs) and definitions for different things, but we'll just leave it at, uh, you know, phrase-free for now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, to have winners,
1: you kind of have to have losers, right? Exactly, right.
0: (laughs) And Catholicism was a big part of this, forcing it on the indigenous people. Um, And that led to ethnic cleansing, which, you know, the estimates are in the hundreds of millions of deaths uh, in north and south america because of this beginning
1: see i was told that the maya just disappeared and when we when they got there it was just like a vacant land where there used to be this these indigenous people but they just vanished for some reason <laughs> and yeah, right right <laughs> i mean with the spread of
0: the rate of disease that we've been able to see over the last two years, it would be no surprise if people, you know, appeared to disappear. But yeah, it was the, the disease thing always drives me nuts because it, you know, like, um, people in the U S government or whatever, kind of be like, well, how could they have known? They didn't know germ theory. And it's like, (laughs) you don't even (laughs) claim germ theory is real right now. One, (laughs) two, um, like they were intentionally getting people sick. Like this was not, you know. Yeah. It, and and they were shooting the ones that didn't get sick. So let's not <laughs> pretend that they were like
1: trying to be nice. Like the um, the, uh, the getting people sick was good because it saved you on on uh, bullets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're on a budget here. You could, so you could then, only bring over so many bullets from Spain and France and Italy w- originally. You know There were only so many bullets that you could put on a ship. So if you're going to wipe need to wipe out like tens to hundreds of thousands of indigenous people, you're going to need to find some creative ways to do it that's not just shooting them.
0: I mean, their bullets were the same size as lemons, and they didn't want to get scurvy. So it was kind <laughs> of a, you know. So then uh, Cortez... Goes, um, so the Spanish didn't get as wealthy as they wanted in the Caribbean, so they expanded to the mainland. That's where Cortez found things he could make very large profits on, like sugar, um, indigo tubers, like yams and stuff, and corn. And uh, he's well known for bringing down the Aztec Empire, and by doing so, which you know, the Aztecs you can learn about uh, the Aztec Empire yourself and their kind of strata. But Cortez established the racial hierarchy that exists to this day mm-hmm. um, on these continents. And that is, you know, the pure white uh, European bloodlines are at the top. And then you have, you know, um, indigenous and European bloodlines next. And then, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, indigenous and white bloodlines, yeah, then the half European bloods. and. Yeah, you have that and then you have, you know, different, essentially just putting together this racial hierarchy that we all know exists. But again, you have to understand these are like things that happened in the 1500s, 1400s that cause a downwind effect (laughs) to like a large scale. Well,
1: even then, to justify extermination, you have to dehumanize that which you need to exterminate. So if you can classify it in some way that these this level of being is vermin or on par with dogs and rats, then whatever human empathy impulse that you have is easily uh, suaded so that you don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm just, you know, we're just doing exterminating all the cockroaches type of type of thing
0: right um so that goes on for a long time just the exploitation of people and land there then we get to the early 1800s and this is when resistance movements start popping up and you know what they would call new spain and central mexico is where a lot of these movements took hold um this is where you get like the priest hidalgo marching from dolores to mexico city the beginning of the Spanish independence war from Spain, um, and they gained independence in 1821. But <clears throat> at this time, they, the government in Mexico tried to, um, emulate like the enlightenment period countries of the time, like the U S and Haiti, which further alienated the indigenous people. Um, there was still that racial hierarchy among people of, well, yeah, we're free from Spain, but that's because they were like not giving us all of the money. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm from Europe. Like I can tell you, my family came over here two generations ago, but I want to keep the money here. So mm-hmm. I'm still in charge now. So that's kind of the mentality that's going on with the the government. <clears throat> and the the harm and alienation to indigenous people occurs because They are again subjugated, not allowed to have land or keep the profit. Or even if they, uh, you know, make some kind of cash crop and sell it, they don't get to decide what the price is. The person buying it decides.
1: Yeah, and these the indigenous cultures had no real pre existing notion of a monetary market system where they could commodify their labor or whatever their sources for food were of growth or goods. It was, you know, they're much more communal. Um, and, you know, everyone has a job in the society, whether you're the firewood chopper or you're the the corn grower or whatever, everyone sort of is pitching in on their part, and then all of the goods of the society are shared amongst all the people. So th- then to basically force them into a situation where, the only way that they could survive was to figure out a way to commodify those things because the world demanded that they be commodified is is another big part of the problem here.
0: Yeah. And then you talk about those resources, the uh, U.S. war against Mexico with the pretext of California and Texas independence um, annexed 55% of Mexican territory. So then that cuts the available resources in more than half Mm -hmm. um which you know of course is going to affect people at the margins um fast forwarding through the 1800s france establishes a dictator Um, then mexico has to fight against uh france for independence then another dictator gets installed that has rapid modernization in the 1870s um His dictatorship lasted for 31 years. And rapid modernization, uh, as we've spoken about before, it is definitely going to kill people and kill people that don't have the ability to modernize and don't have the ability to keep up or don't want to keep up with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, that's why it's important to lay all of the groundwork beforehand. It's not that they chose not to keep up with it because they were you know, stubborn or something. It's because they for what is it over 200 years prior have not been given any opportunity to to have a livable situation right right. um then in the 1910s this is where stuff really starts to kind of kick off for the zapatistas is um the mexican revolution um occurs and this is where you have emiliano zapata Um, as one of the, like, leaders of the revolution. And the importance for um, Zapata, for the Zapatistas, the namesake, um, is he was born poor and he was willing to fight for the poor. Right. Um, His, like, famous phrase was, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees at, like, you know, the hands of the capitalist exploiters. So this is for the first time somebody has decided I'm going to fight for the people that are indigenous and I'm going to fight for the people that are not the owners or whatever. Um, So I think, I mean, that establishes like their new constitution and the PRI, the, um, the institutional revolutionary party pre Um, which very quickly turned into just another kind of lame party that, you know, exploited people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what bring brought us up to the uh, Zapatista uprising that I think, um, you know, is the main thing that you're really kind of interested in talking. Yeah.
1: So the big things to note in the formation of the Mexican constitution in 1917, after uh, Pancho Villa and Zapata, uh, Zapata's uh, Upright or Revolt in 1910, um, so when they the dust was settling and they convened a new Congress in order to write a constitution, um, the members of the group of the governing body that were going to write the constitution, they still had quite a few sort of moderate conservatives that. Were holdovers from previous government institutions that still had power because they were representative of other states and uh, regions in the country, but they were now outnumbered almost two to one by the revolutionaries that had joined the Congress to write the new constitution. So it's, some, it's something like a uh, hundred and forty to eighty or something like that is the is the breakdown of that Congress. So, um. The Constitution is originally drafted by some of the conservative moderate members, um, but with the idea that it's just a draft and it's going to be like, this is just the starting point of our debate. And of course, most of that is completely revised because they're overruled by having a lot of these revolutionaries now being part of the Congress. And the majority of those revolutionaries are actual soldiers and commanders in the um, rebellious army for Zapata and Pancho Villa. So they've been fighting, you know for almost a decade all over the country, and they've been fighting alongside indigenous people, for for other indigenous people. So they have a very radical view of how the Constitution needs to be written. And they're not going along with any of the sort of moderate conservative proposals for how the Constitution works. And so one of the big compromises that the moderate conservative wing has to make is Article 27 of the Constitution. And that article is basically a reparations article um, that the, the revolutionary uh, armies wanted in there, basically saying that land— Is not a private property um, issue. These lands are communal lands. They should be operated by the indigenous people that originally inhabited these lands. Those people should also be able to get the fruits of all of their labor and the resources off those properties with a carve out for oil, just in case they found oil under (laughs) something. Then the government would still get the oil.
0: (laughs) of course
1: but but not only that it established like a lot of land restrictions like um non-nationals can't own land in a lot of certain regions of the country they can't own any coastal lands they can't own any border lands um those could only be owned by nationals um or operated by nationals of mexico um and but but basically the idea was that if if in America we had gotten to do a do-over on our constitution, like after the Civil War, and part of it was like this big give back to all of the Native American indigenous populations, so instead of just throwing them on reservations, we would have been like, okay, guys, well, we're just going to give you like— most of western united states back and we'll give you like a bunch of these areas in new york back and a bunch of these areas in massachusetts back and here's florida too <laughs> and and but it's 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 for you guys to uh sustain yourselves off of and if uh no one's going to come in here and take any of this land for you and buy it unless you specifically and all of your tribe decided that you wanted to sell off a parcel of this land, that's the only way that it could get sold off. So that becomes the way that Mexico operates um, as far as, like, land use is concerned and in relation to the indigenous population. Um, There are some amendments made to this in, like, the 70s for discovery of, like, other mineral rights and things like that. So as, um, you know... Uh, the industrial capitalist class starts to increasingly grow in the world. There are some carve-outs made to this amendment uh, or amended to this article um, in in the early 70s. But the big one happens with NAFTA. Um, because NAFTA, in order to make a free trade agreement, a quote-unquote free trade agreement... Um, that would then supersede the original agreement that was just held between North America and Canada in order to get Mexico in there to make it the um, the largest collective free trade zone in the world at the time, I think, by GDP, once they combined those three things together and made a free trade deal with it. In order to make that work, you have to elicit all of the governments of the three countries involved to make sure that everyone is going to be playing by capitalist rules. Because if you don't get everyone playing by capitalist rules, then how are we gonna really have free trade? (laughs) We gotta let the the invisible hand of the market decide all of these things for us. You can't have free
0: trade among people um, if nobody wants to make a profit. (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, a little kind of sounds like a euphemism there.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, one of the big carve outs and this causes a big problem in the United States and Canada at the beginning of the NAFTA um, debates was that there were basically no uh, allowances for any kind of labor organizing. Not just in, like, Mexico, but not in America, not in Canada. Like, one of the things that could have brought NAFTA down was if they allowed a bunch of labor organizing amongst the people because then that would really make it so that everyone couldn't maximize their profits. Um, and so they put in some very toothless language into NAFTA to make it seem like they had the rights uh, and concerns of the workers in Canada and the United States under concern. But... Um, Labor union groups still protested the deal because basically it was like uh af- after you get all after you get exploited and abused by a corporation and you wait ten years, then you can file a formal complaint and then we might read it
0: <laughs> Yeah, why'd you wait ten years to do it if it was such a bad yeah. bad complaint huh <clears throat>
1: um and so uh, so not only that, so you get the labor carve outs, but then you have to have. The ability for corporate interests to own and operate the land on which they are going to generate these new goods to have free trade with. And so one of the big deals was, what if we made Mexico into the biggest beef producer in the world? Like, that was the big idea. This would be a thing that could really generate a lot of profits for everybody in this new free trade zone. And look at all this extra land we have in Mexico. We could just grow a lot of cows there. Well, that land was, you know, owned, occupied, and operated and lived on by indigenous people. And thus, they were protected by Article 27 of the Constitution. They couldn't—government couldn't just say, hey— Stop growing corn for your own kids. It's time to do cows. Um, So they had to amend Article 27 in order to make it such that those lands that were a reparation to hundreds of years of impression to indigenous people... Now we're kind of taking that back.
0: <laughs> right. Well, we need cows.
1: Yeah. And I mean, do you really need corn to feed your family? You could grow cows and then you could sell those cows to market and then you could have money and then you could go use that money to buy corn to feed your family.
0: Is that where that horrible um political science poster was created? It's like capitalism is you have two cows and you sell one of the cows to buy whatever. And then socialism is the government allows you to have two cows. Do you know the poster I'm talking about? No, I about? don't know the
1: poster you're talking about.
0: Uh, it was like in every poli like high school class during my years.
1: Yeah, so big picture, before we get into the specific Zapatista revolt over, over, this, over NAFTA, basically. Um, what ends up happening as NAFTA is introduced... Is that yes? Mexico becomes like the biggest beef producer. Um, they give up all a lot of their corn production in order to do this. Um, the United States and Canadian markets see a huge increase in fast food beef production and fast food cons- beef consumption by all of the people that live in these live in our countries. And then, um, <laughs> corn becomes such a low yield crop in Mexico, even though all they do is eat corn and make tortillas and that's like a primary staple of their diet that Mexico starts to have to import corn because they've given away so much land to grow beef for America and Canada that they can't feed, they can't grow enough corn to feed their own country anymore. So they have to start importing corn from the United States. (laughs) It's like, it's like, okay, I, I get, I get that. You created a, you created a trade market where things, Mexico had plenty of corn. America had a lot of cattle. What if we switched all that up and forced them to trade it between each other? And then we got to enact, you know, cost increases and, you know, levy charges on top of all of those things going back and forth so we could rake more money off the top instead of just the people getting those goods that they grew themselves. Um, So it is it is a sort of irony of ironies that the the markets totally flip just because of this sort of fun idea of what if we just switched it up to, to increase trade? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's such a, you know,
0: I, I knew very basics of NAFTA, but um, to know that like the Clinton administration is like, yeah, uh, you're going to have to change your constitution. We cannot allow indigenous people to, um keep land that they should have like that they've lived on for thousands of years is such a like man it's also just a very a
1: a very american viewpoint like look yeah of course can't you see what you should do with indigenous people like we kind of dealt with it here so you know why this isn't a problem for us because we dealt with it
0: yeah. I mean, it makes <laughs> sense. He did have slaves at his governor mansion. So.
1: Right. And so in order to enforce this, so um, the, the Zapatista army is a thing that starts in the 80s before NAFTA is ratified. But it's just this very small sort of ragtag group that is um, protecting their indigenous lands. And this is after some of the clawbacks of the 70s. To Article 27 that start to change some of the rights, and you start to see more involvement of government intrusion um, inside of uh, Chiapas, the, the southern east, southeastern state of Mexico where the Zapatista Revolt or, originates from. Um, so they start a very s- sort of small group of folks that are just about sort of defending their property, defending their families, defending their tribes— And it takes until the early 90s when NAFTA starts to be discussed, that really um, lights a fire under their movement and starts to make it so that it's not just a bunch of sort of villages and tribes that aren't concerned with each other's well being. They're just kind of concerned with their own survivability of their own parcel. Now they're actually joining together to be one voice that we are. We are not at odds with each other. We are one voice of poor, oppressed, indigenous people. And not only that, there's a bunch of other poor people that have been forced into this region that aren't necessarily indigenous, but they also share in our plight. So we're going to join forces with all those people. And we're all going to say, look, this NAFTA thing is bullshit. So January 1, 1994, the day NAFTA is supposed to go into effect, um, the Zapatista, um army at this point now. Um, numbers vary, but they're probably around 3,000. Um, they go and they start to seize a number of cities in Chiapas uh, on the early morning of January 1st. And they meet really no resistance whatsoever. In fact, most of the townspeople and cities people are happy to have them. They're like, yeah, come on, we're sympathetic to the cause. We're, yeah, we're happy was... to be Zapatista cities.
0: Did you see the vice... Like thing talking about the twenty year anniversary. No,
1: I didn't watch that one.
0: They interviewed the journalist that um in Cristobal, like the I would imagine like kind of the main city, because that's the one that everything talks about, um, in Chiapas or the main city that they took. There's there was a journalist that he was the first one that was like stopped by them and is like, here's our declaration of war, fax this out. And he said, like, as he was like walking into his office to do this stuff, he was like euphoric and just thought, like, finally something is going to happen in this country mm-hmm. because, you know, throughout time, and this is hard for me to contextualize. Again, being born in 1990, but the 90s felt like there had been—I had imagine—I'd imagine so many attempts at social movements that were stamped out and um you know suppressed and everything so if you have one in the 90s it actually feels like okay maybe this is the one that's going to work like you know it like the you know civil rights had only happened 30 ish years prior really kind of 20 years prior to the 90s um and those rights are still you know not necessarily respected. Yeah, yeah. you are tenuous. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think, I mean, this is where it feels like, um, you know, Zach of Rage, when he kind of seemed to get frustrated around like 2000 or whatever, that like people are listening to our music, but they're not doing something about it. Yeah. I can imagine that's kind of the feeling in the 90s. So the earlier 90s, 94, mid 90s, of something actually happening does feel like okay something can actually happen. We don't have to just lay down and take it.
1: And the Zapatista thinking of just where the Zapatistas are coming from, they're coming from a mountainside jungle in Chiapas, Mexico, where after this revolt, you know, the next the next day, Mexico sends a bunch of the army and 70,000 troops, <laughs> yeah, like half of the army, and they drive them all out of the cities they had taken in Chiapas and they drive them all into the jungle. And Mexico starts their campaign in order to uh, stamp out this resistance. Um, and one of the primary ways they initially start to do it is just direct aggression. Like, we're going to directly go in there and kill as many people as we can. We're going to, any on any street in Chiapas, any dirt side road where we see women or children walking, we're going to snatch them up and we're going to harass them. We're going to rape the women. We're going to interrogate them, ask them if they know where the Zapatista leaders are, ask them where Marcos is. Um, and torture them. They just
0: bombed the jungle too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, like, yeah, they just, they're blowing things up there. There's lots of footage of just like these peaceful, you know, mountain regions that are not developed in any way, like not even paved roads or anything. And it looks like Vietnam, you know, Vietnam war footage. Cause there's just smoke rising from all these different spots in the jungle where they're just blowing stuff up. <clears throat> anyway, so the uh, the the Zapatistas hide in the jungle. They, you know, institute like a guerrilla style war. They they quickly reach a ceasefire agreement because you know they the original goal from the outset has always been a movement of peace. That and this is. Through the people um, that live in Chiapas, and even those that don't define themselves as part of the Zapatista Army but are sympathetic to the cause, you know, they go out and they meet the soldiers in the towns, in the streets, and they often their, their rallying chant is, "We came here to talk to you about peace. We didn't even come here with rocks or sticks or anything in our hands. We came here barefoot with our children, and you're showing up with guns and armored personnel carriers and helicopters to." And you want to have a dialogue, and we're saying we're we're happy to have a dialogue, but you got to take all the weapons away because we didn't walk in here with weapons. Um, so that's uh, sort of their approach, um, and this is gaining traction around the world to the point where Marcos and the other elements of the of the resistance are starting to see this as a not just a isolated thing that's happening in Chiapas. They really want to promote this as a uh, cause of social justice and people's uprising that is just... It's a hot point that's happening right here, but this is a thing that's going on all over the world. And if you don't think... That This is an isolated incident. Just wait a few years. (laughs) This is not this is not just going to be happening to us. It's going to happen to everyone and anyone who ends up on the wrong side of the socioeconomic hierarchy of capitalism going forward. You are going to be marginalized. You are going to be exploited. You are going to be thrown out on the street. You are going to be murdered by authorities and cops. And that is the way that they are going to deal with you because they must meet any kind of dissent or any kind of inconvenience with that level of authoritarian punitive um oppressive control because the oppressors know that the only threat to their power is that type of dissent um and it it makes it a big humanitarian movement around the world because there's just footage of Women and children being chased out of their out of their villages into the jungle because they get maybe like a 30 second warning that a raiding party of paramilitary is about to come to their town to kill everybody and so they just have to leave in whatever state they're in. And which you see the footage on news of uh, all these women had to leave and they were in the middle of bathing their children. So they had to just run into the jungle with uh, their naked children and they're half naked themselves. And then they have to live in the jungle for weeks at a time in that type of condition. Um, And then, you know, they're getting disease and other things like that because they have no way of keeping themselves clean or feeding themselves and uh the few tortillas they have are covered in mold and weevils and all that type of stuff it's just a systemic um extermination and after they reached the ceasefire in January in 1994 part of the there's a there's a law passed in Mexico that prevents any occupation by Mexican military forces on civilian land um so they this law is passed and they think, oh, cool. Well, that means that the occupation of Chiapas will finally be over. They'll probably they'll finally take all the all this military out. Well, they don't. And that causes more frustration amongst the indigenous people because they're saying you are violating the one the law that you just passed by having military occupation occupation here and bases all set up. And one of the ways Mexico eventually tries to get around that is basically by hiring uh, their version of Blackwater, these bunch of paramilitary groups and militias to occupy those lands. So it's not officially the Mexican military, but they're being paid by the Mexican government, which is actually getting funding directly from the Clinton administration to the tune of over a quarter of a billion dollars over three years in the late 90s in order to um, basically hire these hitmen to go out and carry out this extermination of these people. Um, So... That that's when you really get a lot of uh, the uprising with Rage Against the Machine because that's when Zach really goes hardcore after the Clinton administration and you know talks about how he doesn't care about all of their um, weak-lipped service to any kind of progressive or Democrat type of issues because it doesn't matter when you give the Mexican government a quarter of a billion dollars to murder people.
0: Yeah, I think the... The thing that's also interesting to keep into context is um, Subcommandant Marcos also spoke a lot about like the world wars as World War I, mm-hmm. World War II, of course, um, and World War Three. the Cold War, being the war between socialism in various forms and capitalism. And if you consider all of the like military expeditions and and genocides as a result of these kind of ideologies that occurred, there's anywhere between 10.8 and 25 million people killed during the Cold War. That's the war that... The U.S. loves to tell you, well, it's cold because there was not a single shot fired. <laughs> it's like, well, you're funding paramilitaries all over Let's, the Americas. Tell, tell,
1: tell me about Nicaragua here. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> what about, you know, Vietnam? Like, that was, you know, yeah, that was a war. But they they like to separate it instead of contextualizing it in this overall situation, you know, because it was proxy. Um and marcos also mentioned the fourth world war which he and i think probably if if he's saying it then it's kind of a zapatista uh, ideology that it's ongoing between neoliberalism and globalization uh not between them but those are the the active forces and it's occurring between financial institutions mm-hmm. um so it's it's interesting to then contextualize that and the you know clinton administration having these um that you know weak lip service of saying that they're doing these progressive things and helping people when in reality like they they say that and then they're funding all of these people to literally go in and kill people like that that is what the paramilitaries did and that is what they currently still do. Yeah, and is- I
1: think the the interesting thing is that also the tactics of the paramilitary groups, they they find that just straight out finding the insurgents and killing them is not the mo is not the most effective strategy. If they really want to weaken the Zapatistas, the way to do it is to target the women. And this is this is an under, other sort of interesting part that's like a sort of side chain of progression that's going on along to this. Th- there is a very uh traditional um type of top-down male-centric part of the indigenous culture in especially in Chiapas. Um and you know women were very subordinate especially You know, with all of the missionaries of Catholicism coming through, there was this very sort of God-man-woman hierarchy um, that everyone participated in. And that was like the established way of things to the point where like before this, before the Zapatista movement, like it was still common where like women wouldn't even make eye contact with a man. And when this becomes a people's movement, a people's uprising, a big thing that Marcos does is making sure that of the people in the commanding ranks of the Zapatista army, over half of them are women. Over 50% of those, of that group is women. And over a third of the just army is female soldiers. Um, and not only that, he makes it such that he's not the only mouthpiece for for the revolution or anything like that he promotes the women in the ranks to be the to be big mouthpieces to to the world um and so there is this there is a shift in gender roles and equality and things that happen almost out of pure necessity because you have to all join together in a collectivist movement in order to fight something that's this powerful and strong coming against you. You can't just be like, oh, little woman, stay home. This isn't your fight. This is for this big brawny men to deal with.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it is It is um like collectivist in the actual sense of the word, um, which is very interesting that they're able to do that in a way that... I mean, it. I I didn't see it mentioned in any of this stuff, but as you were also saying to me yesterday, finding stuff on all of this is very difficult because they, like, the Zapatistas, because of the way they've been portrayed in the media, like, they don't really allow news, like, TV media in. Like, they'll sometimes allow radio media mm-hmm. um, because they don't want to be, they know how things can be shifted. You know, they're all like covering their faces. They they say at like this seminar that I was reading through, Um, I cover my face here because I'm showing you a Zapatista. I only take this off when I need to hide. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's kind of an interesting way of looking at it, of like I'm wearing this to show you that I'm one of this movement. I'm not like hiding my identity. I'm, like actively showing you that i'm part of this movement so it's kind of a it's a twist in the way that you would think about things but it makes me feel so much like they have the pedagogy of the oppressed mentality when they're going through education which is also like you know the paramilitaries go in and abduct and kill their teachers because they know they're the ones that are continuing the ideology of thinking of we're all in this together and this is how we can form, you know, like they're, the thing with their education is it's democratic. The, the little like groups of people all vote together on what should be taught in the schools. And then the teachers have a dialogical approach, mm-hmm. um, with the students like they're, they don't call themselves teachers. They're promoters of education.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, he, he often references in his interviews um, the important, uh, the importance of understanding history as an ongoing lived experience of everyone who's alive, uh, not some sort of abstract thing that you learn from a book, um, that these histories are being made right now. So you have to take an active role in the history. You can't just be a bystander. And he, that's what he talks about with the... Uh, the the one of the biggest threats to these types of movements is that the the choice to either be apathetic about it or or remain uninformed about it um or the choice to surrender to it because you're just tired of fighting um and that's why he like the big idea was to scale this, you know, like it'll start here, right. but we'll scale this and it'll be like a worldwide movement, um, which it didn't you know, that didn't happen. It didn't become a worldwide uprising, but the uh, their plight in Chiapas and their f- continued fight for making these types of situations all around the world known uh goes on to to this day that Mexican government was never able to murder Marcos
0: <laughs> No the the Zapatistas killed Marcos Yeah <laughs> which it was like symbolic um but it's it's very interesting like the way that they're you know it's like the the it's a vanguard movement um so they have you know as a vanguard Have to have like this hierarchy of information dissemination because it has to come from the top. But they insist that there's no leader among the group. Um, so when it comes to things like, uh, you know, their education or healthcare or whatever, it's all decided together. Um, what is going to happen Mm -hmm. when it comes to like science? They have like conferences where, um, academics from all over the world can come together and just have dialogue discussing like what role can science have in this movement um and how can we combat you know things like climate change which is very interesting that they're i mean i loved it they're like mascot and the thing that they call like their kind of capital cities um are like caracol which is spanish uh for snail and the snail is like their kind of mascot because they they have their house on their back and their motto is, um, we advance slowly, but we advance, mm-hmm. which is just like a cool way of thinking about it that they're like, yeah, we're going to take our time with these things because it's our livelihood. We know how it was for 500 years and if we let it slip because we try to go too fast or try to make too rash of a decision that not everyone is on board with then that can be the downfall of us at least being able to live and i think that's the thing that's most important to point out from a lot of uh reporters that go there is they're like it's not like a romantic ideal of a place it is still a struggle of these things but at least they're not being killed like systemically um, yeah by the
1: If you can just, if you can just uh, work your farm and worry about your couple of goats and your kids and making sure that they get fed and stuff, it's, it's a hard life. It's a lot harder when you have thousands of military staring at you and you're not used to being surveilled and you have helicopters flying low overhead all of the time and you don't, and there's no like, because you're classified as lower than a human being by the society there's real no repercussions if a cop you know does something to you or uh or or a paramilitary you know breaks a kid's arm or any anything that we would think would be oh my gosh that's just terrible like that's not even a second thought um i mean even in this country what repercussions
0: have occurred for the cops that like Shot people point blank in the face with flashbangs two summers ago. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's not even like with the, that's, that's just a movement for racial, you know, understanding. That's not even saying that it's, they're going into villages where people of a different racial class live, you know, to try and make it understandable. That's saying like, Cops need to stop brutalizing black people in America, and the cops are answering that by blinding people and breaking people's arms. Mm-hmm. And what what happens in this country? Right, <laughs> so, and I
1: think that's the other thing that's important to to understand here, too, is that while oppression is a monolith, the individual actions of violence taken... When it's made, when it's basically made known that these are underclass human beings and that there is a political movement, a conservative political movement inside of Mexico that vilifies them for even existing, then you can have where. The president will say nice things about, oh, yeah, we want peace and harmony and we don't want we want the indigenous to be able to thrive and all that type of stuff. But then you can have like the mayor of one city who has ideological uh, conservative leanings against the these vermin that are living out in the jungles outside of his town and he can just like. Pay a pay a paramilitary force himself to go in and kill a bunch of people, like right. So so like it basically, if you if in America you were able to say, oh yeah, well this is like a uh, you know sort of a redneck Texas town where uh, we we take we take the law into our own hands type of thing, and you know the mayor of that town just told the sheriff, oh yeah, you know just we don't even need black people around in this in this town after dark, so you might as well kill them. Um, that's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing there. Right. It doesn't once, once, uh, the, uh, guardrails have been taken off. It's not like, uh, you have to have some evil master at the top that then dictates direct orders down to all of the subordinates to go kill these people in this indigenous region of Mexico. No, they, everyone just knows that that's like, oh yeah, that's sort of the, uh, the way it is so i can just kind of act with autonomy and do these things and really not fear repercussion for them
0: yeah it's um it's pretty wild but i think it's it's very interesting to know that this place exists with 360,000 people like in their autonomous zones yeah um
1: and when we talked to when we you know briefly touched on like what would america look like if things got so bad that we just decided not to be a republic anymore. And th- this is kind of what I think. Like, you would have these types of things where there would be autonomous zone regions of the country where, like, it would be just too difficult necessarily for the American military to just wage an all-out war against them constantly. Uh, so you'd have these little pockets pop up where there would, they would just constantly terrorize the those people in those autonomous zones over t- over time— and then, you know, save face by saying, we're, tr- we're also doing diplomatic relations with each other to, to open up trade and access to medicine and whatever, uh, um, while, while also behind the scenes murdering each other. Um, I think that's probably the way it would be. I think this is a very good analog to maybe, maybe American future, breakup of America future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, something to look forward to, I suppose. And it's also just another thing of how, how many sins do we get to not have to deal with as America based kind of solely on geography? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Think of, think of America's history was we did all the things we did to our indigenous population, but then like there was a big uh, war of independence and like Canada took back like half of the Western United States. And so all of a sudden where we had like banished all the indigenous tribes so we wouldn't have to deal with them on the East Coast anymore. All of a sudden they were either forced back or forced it back into a conflict, direct conflict with established white European society in America. Um, but how would we handle that? Would we be all cool about it <laughs> or would <laughs> like it's it's way easier to. uh to have like a rosy rose-colored glasses false mythology of your history of a people if you have enough land that you can just tuck some indigenous people away and forget about them but if you don't have that geographic option <laughs> right, then yeah. uh then then you have to kind of deal with this shit um <laughs> and so it, it's just another one of those um conveniences of geography we we get to avoid having to deal with a a lot of our problems because of how big america is and because we're bordered by two giant oceans so we don't really have to actually ever deal with the threat (laughs) either we don't have to be like come up with like uh more uh combination working together type of situations between nations, we can unilaterally say, hey, uh, Mexico, and Canada, how about you guys change a bunch of stuff up? And we'll, guess what? I mean, the World Trade Organization said that NAFTA is going to be great for everybody. Um, and so uh, also, in order to make sure the World Trade Organization's ideas go through, we have this American military that's going to make sure that that happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And no, no one's going to fuck with that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean the the current uh migration like situation in the US too is like a direct result of NAFTA. Yeah. So it all it all comes back to NAFTA.
1: <clears throat> well, um anyway, all that to say, I'm excited to go see Rage on Saturday. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's going to be fun. It's been a minute. Uh I I never saw them live in the 90s. Uh but you know the it, it, it this was an interesting one to me because it just made me go back to being that sixteen seventeen year old kid who was who had grown up with a very rigid worldview uh established for him and uh it it was things like the Zapatista Club that were one of the first things that were like, "Oh my God, there's things going on in the world, <laughs> yeah. Wait <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. You're telling me that uh that uh, the US government could do bad stuff?
0: <laughs> you don't have to be the object of history.
1: <clears throat> so, uh this was a fun uh, not a not a fun one in terms of the subject matter, but a but a f- sort of fun uh way back machine to remember the uh idiot that I used to be when I was a teenager. <laughs> um I'm sure you are fine. I don't know. I don't know, uh, Eric. <laughs>
0: okay, never mind.
1: <laughs> all right, man. That's all I've got. Until next week. All right. Bye.